Thank you so much. Good morning. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to continue uh, looking at the parables of Jesus, simple stories, daring truths. We're in Luke chapter 19. And as is wonderful working uh, for the Lord with Brian, he mentioned uh, narrative framework. Well, there's a narrative framework. We, uh, we touch on that from time to time. We don't always call it a narrative framework, but there's a setting, there's a context that helps inform the story. And being removed uh, in so many ways by language, time, culture, there are other ways that sometimes I try to insert some things to help us have a better narrative framework, not only the one that's given and then the culture and the language and so forth. But this morning, it will help us to realize that Jesus uh, began to make his way resolutely toward Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. So in the narrative arc of Luke's gospel, it is at chapter 9, verse 51. Now we're at chapter 19, and all the events and experiences that have been narrated by Luke are bringing us closer and closer to Jerusalem. In the beginning of chapter 19, Jesus is in Jericho. And by the way, Jericho is about an eight hours walk from Jerusalem and a 3,400-foot elevation gain, but, a, but within a, a day's walk. And Jesus is in Jericho, and it is there as he's moving through town, and the crowds are large. Zacchaeus, of course, climbs a tree to see Jesus. Jesus stops, calls him down, and to his house he goes, and they see a transformation in this tax collector, uh, a hated figure to the people because he's the tax collector and he represents the, the weight of taxes of Rome. And, and Jesus says, salvation has come to your house this day and this is a child of Abraham, which means this guy, this enemy is saved. He's one of us. And this is an astonishing thing. And as we begin to read, we're going to see that with these kinds of events that have been narrated, expectations are on the rise. That when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he is going to be crowned king. He's going to be recognized as Messiah openly. He's going to, so to speak, in all of its fullness, bring in the kingdom. And it is right after this story that in verse 28 we're told Jesus then makes his way to Jerusalem and the following is the triumphal entry. So that's kind of our narrative context as we read now starting at verse 11. And you'll see that verse 11 in fact puts the parable, the story in that context. As they heard these things, the things that he had said there in Jer Jericho with, with uh, Zacchaeus, he proceeded to tell a parable 
Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman, that would be someone born of noble birth, like a prince who's heir to the kingdom, the child heir of a king. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. Now, these are not exotic birds. In fact, in verse 15, the word money translates to silver. These were silver coins. Each mina was the equivalent of a hundred denarii. So, a dime is like ten pennies, right? A quarter, 25 pennies. Better to hold a quarter than 25 pennies. A dollar than a hundred pennies. A mina was a hundred days value in labor. A general laborer or a soldier. So this is a tidy sum, about a third of a of a person's annual income. So whatever your income, if you imagine being entrusted with a third of what you earn in a year, that's kind of what Jesus is giving to each of these estate servants. They are his servants. Okay, where was I? And he said to them, verse 13, engage in business until I come. The notion is of using this to trade and make gain. And that becomes very clear in verse 15. And so, then we're told, but his citizens, and note the word, his citizens. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by trading or doing business. And the first came upon him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Now, he doesn't repeat this entire conversation with the next slave. But this is a, a brief story. And there's no reason to believe that uh, he doesn't repeat, well done, uh, good servant, uh, to the next. And then came a second saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And by the way, notice how they call him Lord now. Now, they might have called him Lord before because he was their nobleman, but now he's the king. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. 
You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words or judge you by your own words. You wicked servant, you knew that I was a severe man. The word is austere in, in Greek, uh, a strict, an exact, uh, severe man. Taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Now you recall he said, I'm going to judge you by your own words. Well, here's his judgment. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And then he explains his judgment. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those or these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. At 20, and uh, a pretty new believer, I was, uh, I'd been following the Lord just, uh, mm, I would say about that time, it was about one year, maybe not a full year. And uh, Shelley, in the meantime, and uh, I had become engaged. And I had such a strong sense of the Lord's coming that he was going to return and preempt my opportunity to become the husband of Shelley Wilder. And that really created a conflict in my spirit, you know? Um, I, like many Christians, we eagerly anticipate and expectantly live uh, in the knowledge that Jesus will return. He will come again. But I'll tell you, as you're approaching the wedding, uh, your wedding to the love of your life, your prayers run a little bit like this. Um, Lord, what's, on, what's another month? <laughs> or as you get even closer, you know, Lord, what's another week? Or even, what's another day? Well, here we are almost two months uh, away from our 40th wedding anniversary, and I'm still trying to live expectantly as though the Lord is due to come any time. And that's kind of a contemporary setting for us. How do we live? Are we living expectantly and faithfully in view of the Lord's return? I think it's interesting, I might just add, that uh, I thought... Well, one mina is a nice round figure, but it's also about a three months, uh, four months uh, amount of work. And uh, did I say three months earlier? It's worth four months of, of labor. And I thought, what if the travel of the king to this far country was expected to take, say, around four months? We don't know. But it's obvious that in this interval, those of his estate, those servants closest to him are expected to carry on business as though he's still there. 
as though he could walk out, you know, into his property at any place and put eyes on them and see them faithfully carrying out what he's entrusted them to do. They're to live in a way as though he could come upon them and say, step it up a little bit. You know, you've lost your fire, brother. <laughs> You're not following exactly what I told you to do. Let me, let me correct you here. He didn't, so to speak, leave them uh, to operate with his eyes upon them or in a position to goad them. He asked them to be faithful. We're, we, we know he's... He, he didn't use the word, be faithful. He, he didn't use the word, honor me in my absence. Show me in the way you behave while I'm gone how much you trust me. He didn't, he didn't say any of that. But he showed that he trusted them, expected of them to carry on business and to take what he had put into their hands for that purpose and to create gain to enlarge, almost like when the junior hires or the high schoolers, uh, what's the name of that game where they start out like with next to nothing and they come back with refrigerators, couches, cars, ping pong tables. You know, they start out like with a dime and they go out and they, bigger and better, isn't it? That's what he expects. And it really brings into view the fact that Jesus honors faith that honors him. And that's what I want us to really see here as I try to, so to speak, help us to understand the, the setting and the context of the story and what it meant then, but also how it relates in a parallel or similar way to us, even though we're in a very different situation and context. But one thing is very much the same, is that we are his trusted servants. And I think we'll see some parallels between the setting as, where, as well. Faith honors Jesus' word. You know, that's kind of the application and relevance for us, but I'm drawing that out of the fact that of the ten servants, and by the way, this is a sampling. It's a story. It's a parable. It's, it's not a precise allegory. Uh, it's not like a theologian teaching. He's giving a memorable story to drive home some big ideas, to make some big, deep impressions, especially upon the crowd that's following him and the disciples that are so clearly committed to him. And he wants them to know that when he gets to Jerusalem, their expectations are going to be, so to speak, postponed. And how are they going to live in the wake of his death and resurrection, which they don't at the time of this telling see? And the opposition that they're going to face when those who reject Jesus as the Messiah, as the King, when they encounter that kind of rejection and opposition, and so very much, these, uh, these servants, and we're shown two, 
One multiplies what he has been given tenfold. Another fivefold. And the response of the, of the nobleman now turned king is, well done, good servant. And then even as we saw last Sunday, faithful and little, entrusted with much. And now they're given, I mean, this is extravagant reward. <laughs> extravagant. I mean, you take one mina and, so to speak, multiply it tenfold, and now, because he's king, you get the authority, the responsibility to govern ten cities? In other words, Jesus richly rewards faith, trust, faithfulness, honor. And that's what we're to be doing. That's what we're to be doing. It's interesting that when he rewards such faith, we're shown a, a significant contrast. We don't know if there was another slave. It's one, two, three. But here's a sampling, you know. Uh, the majority are faithful. Not everyone is. And it's a, a very striking contrast that's given to us between the two and the one. But what is Jesus really asking? He's asking those to whom he's entrusted upon his return, do you have something to show your king? Do you have something to show your king? And that's the challenge for us. He rewards generously, extravagantly. But the question is, do we have something to show him? When I look at faith honoring Jesus, is he not saying to those who are listening? Because clearly he is cloaked in the identity of the nobleman. He who is of royal birth, who goes to a far country to receive a kingdom. And when he returns, he is the king. And now there is an accounting. Those who were already his representatives, to whom he's entrusted, his identity, as it were, his, uh, the management of his kingdom until he returns as king, king, you know? And then an accounting of his citizens. And in, for the purpose of this simple story, these citizens reject his leadership. And we see that ever so clearly. Three categories. It's, so to speak, will you serve me? Will you oppose me? Will you do nothing? Will you serve me? And that's a refresher for us, even if we count ourselves among the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He's still challenging his disciples. And the added quality here, when you think of this story, why after he introduces the investment, uh, the, you know, the, when he gives to each of his servants a mina, then we're told in verse 14 that his citizens oppose him. This element of conflict 
explains to us that there is a challenge in serving him in his absence. And then his return in verse 15 and the accounting. Tim Keller, I think many of you, if not all of you, know the name of Tim Keller, pastor of the Redeemer's Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. Numerous books, a very fine author. encourage you to read Tim Keller because he will build and strengthen your faith. But he says the way you live today indicates what you believe about the future. I think that's a a concept that is good for us to live with on a regular basis. I think it's been a ruling thought. It's something I test myself against. He puts it in a little different words, but the idea of, uh, you know, what you say is one thing, John, but what you do, that's what really demonstrates what you believe. And in this case, the issue is appropriate because what do you believe about the future? I take by faith that Jesus is present. I take by faith that faith in the Word of God, faith in the person of Jesus Christ, what He did on the cross and the resurrection. But I have a dickens of a time trying to convince some people that He's present. Do you see Him? Can you touch Him? Can you prove Him? I believe he's going to return. And he's going to come as king, manifest as king of kings. That's the picture we get here in the story. There are no other kingdoms, you know, to just run off to. This is the whole story. And how we live in anticipation and expectation of his return has a lot to do with whether we truly honor him by faith, truly demonstrate our devotion and dedication. And so faith indeed is rewarded at his return because it is an investment of our honor and trust. C.S. Lewis, if I can just talk for a brief moment about faith, he said, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. Let's just ponder that for a second. Because if I, I said, uh, you know, what would be a virtue that, that, that you would wish characterized or described your life? People could point and say, generosity Or very loving, responsible, courageous. But what Lewis is saying is that all of the virtues, make the list as big as you want, all the positive qualities that we admire, those things that when you see in other people you say, there's still good in the world. There's still hope in the world. You see those qualities and it just touches your heart and you say, 
It just, I want to be more like that. Take all those qualities, and what Lewis says is, at the end or in addition is not courage, or it's not just one in the list. Courage is displayed at the point of opposition to demonstrating each one of those virtues because it takes courage to step out and do the right thing. It takes courage to be loving, to be forgiving, to be generous, to be grateful. Sometimes it comes in the face of very apparent opposition. Maybe nobody's going to go with you. Maybe it's not the crowd you're following, but you're going to have to step out of the crowd to say, this is right, this is what I'm going to do. Sometimes it's intensified when it's just you and another person. It could be a husband and a wife, or two friends, or two co-workers. And sometimes when we feel like the odds are 50-50, we just stand our ground. But then we're touched, and the Lord says, step out for me. Do what I would do. Give where I would give. Give in where I would give. Stand on principle and not your ego. And at doing that at that time, it's tough. And Lewis is saying that's the point where courage shows up. And virtues depend on that kind of courage. And I'm just emphasizing this because I think that's what faith is all about. There's always risk involved with faith. To exercise trust in someone you can't see, someone you can't prove. Someone that says, I'm going to come again, and I'm coming as king, and I'm coming with reward, and I'm also coming with judgment. And that's sobering stuff. And it's really presented so plainly and so real to life here because a servant, an estate servant, understands that. And we do too. We actually do too. In fact, I think sometimes, you know, we have bosses who judge us by what we do. I've had, I've, I've worked, you know, I wasn't born a pastor. <laughs> I worked a lot of different jobs, construction, all kinds of stuff. You know, it's kind of like when you hear some celebrity or movie, oh, you waited on tables? Really? <laughs> if I do what a boss asks me to do, and I do it with, with addition and spirit and gain, what do you th how do you think the boss judges me? Yeah, that's a good worker, you know? And they entrust the good worker with extra responsibility. But what if I ignore what the boss asks me to do? And I choose not to try. I have my own agenda. I've got my own schedule, even though it may be on the company's time. And then I blame him for expecting so much of me. You're so unreasonable. What do you think his judgment of me is going to be? Or what if I oppose him 
What if I undermine him? What if I provoke others to oppose him with me? What do you think his judgment of me is going to be? You see, those are the very simple and basic realities of this story. And they're also the realities of our own life. When we live them by faith, without the presence of the nobleman looking over our shoulder or goading us, and that's the situation. And that's the situation in which we live. He honors faith. He rewards faith. And he judges faith. He judges, as we've already alluded. You know, Oscar Wilde said, I just read this this week, it is what you read when you don't have to that determines what you will be when you can't help it. And I thought of other things we could use instead of the word read. We could say, it's what you do when you don't have to. How about that? Or it's how you serve when you don't have to. Or it's how you love when you don't have to. That determines what you will be when you can't help it. That's so appropriate to what Jesus is saying are the dynamics of the nobleman who goes away, leaves entrusted to his servants, his estate gives them an investment for trading and goes away, but he returns. And now they don't have a chance to really do anything different. There's an accounting. The time has come. By the way, I like it when he says, it is what you read when you don't have to that determines what you will, will be when you don't ha- can't help it. I just want to put in a plug. Read your Bibles. Please read your Bibles. We're living in an age in which, uh, you know, even if it's electronic, I don't, just spend time meditating on the Lord. Get to know Him. Know Him better. It's so easy. I'm a child of the birth of television, and it's, it's so easy for us to, to be cocooned by TV, by the internet, by iPods, by so many other things. And I just ask you, what's that going to make you become at a point in which you can't become anything else? And so it is that the word is so important in our lives. But the king tells us his principle of, uh, of judgment. He has servants that honored him and proved faithful. He has a servant that dishonored him and proved unfaithful. He had citizens that opposed him and proved themselves enemies. But we get the principle of his judgment when it's tested in question with the third servant. And he says, you're a hard, you're an austere, you're an exacting man. And he says, I'm going to judge you by your own words. Literally, I'm going to judge you by your own words. And then... He says to him, you should have done this. (laughs) If you didn't want to do anything, you should have done this. Just get the interest off of it. But you didn't do anything. So, 
here's the judgment. Take his mina, give it to the guy with tin, uh, who, who had a tenfold increase. And then he says, you who have, more will be given. You who do not have, what you have will be taken away. And, and what we have is what the nobleman would entrust to us or what Jesus would entrust to us. And not just what he entrusts, but what we do with it. And Jesus says, if we aren't doing anything with what he's given us, then that means we're not doing anything. Do you see that? We're not doing anything. And that calls for change. Jesus is saying, just as the nobleman did, there's no excuse for doing absolutely nothing. Todd Adkins said, we need to keep in mind that whatever we're not changing, we are actually choosing. We always have opportunities to change. I hope that you will contemplate, what are some things that I can change? What are some ways that I am spurred to trade, to do business with all that God has given me? What has he given you? Well, this is where I've wrestled with this because I, I really think he's given us a lot. But as I, as I work with these parables, it's sometimes uh, very challenging to me. And I got to thinking that really, when I think of what Jesus has given me, I, can, I put it into two words, love. Love, the great commandment, his love. Love demonstrated on the cross. I mean, love is just a pillar, a cornerstone in what I think of when I, when I just try to say, what does God want of me? He wants love. He's shown me love. I need to show love. And the other, I could use the word grace. Grace. That he doesn't, uh, you know, hold my sins against me. He's generous. And he expects me to be generous with others. And that's based on his own provision in giving up his one and only son. But here's where I think this comes together with this parable because I think there are times, I know this isn't true in my own life, is that we can get kind of lazy and, and we can translate love and grace in terms of hey, I've got it easy. He loves me. He takes care of everything. He's been generous. I'm not expected to do anything. I'm covered. I'm in the elite group. I'm of the chosen. The frozen chosen, as sometimes they say, you know, because they're not doing anything. They're just sitting on the grace and the love. I'm just enjoying the grace and the love. It's a beautiful thing, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to sing about it. And we're going to meet and we're going to talk about it and sing about it. But you see, that's like the one who wrapped his mina in a cloth. And then there's this other side. I'm going to take that love and that grace and I'm going to realize that it's just, it's changed everything. And it has for me. When God's love and grace gets a hold of you, it changes the way you see the world, see other people. It changes your heart, your spirit. It just, it melts you in ways. And you can't be hard like you were anymore. It changes the way you invest yourself in others. Your use of time, what you value, what you care about. 
It changes everything. And there's a return on that. And I'm suggesting to you that that's the way we judge what Jesus did for us correctly. Because He will judge us by the way we have judged Him. And that is brought out so very clearly. I'll tell you the harshest thing about this is uh, verse 27. You know, after he returns, starting in verse 15, he deals with the faithful servants, he deals with the unfaithful servant, and then we get to verse 27. This is the king now, and he calls all of his citizens, all those who rejected him, all those who hated him, all those who worked against him. And uh, it's interesting, and I take these words very seriously, he says, slay them before me, which tells me that this is an act of judgment, that he must behold, and it must be done before him, the fate of these citizens who reject him. Now, I read a lot of history, and there's a lot of, this happens all the time. I mean, life is cheap. Nothing like today. But when it's carried out before the eyes of the person who issues the judgment, there's a real sense of the value of what is being done that's important. Now, I just want to touch on that because there's something that seems really interesting here to me. There's just no mistake that Jesus in this story is referring to the real life situation about 25 years before this time of Jesus' life when Herod the king died and then after that his sons vied for the kingship of his entire kingdom. And Herod, so to speak, was king at the pleasure of Rome and of Augustus, the emperor of Rome. So when he died, Archelaus, who was in his will, and also Philip and Antipas also made their way to Rome. And we're told in Josephus that the Jewish citizens... The Judean and citizens sent an, an envoy of 50 representatives. And there in Rome, they were met by another 8,000 who together petitioned the Emperor Augustus that Archelaus should not be king. Now, there are the, 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 the the points of contact are so striking. You wonder, why would Jesus use this story that would be so apparent to the people listening when you talk about a narrative context? And Archelaus was hated, hated like his father. And in fact, uh, Josephus tells us that Just before this, they had hoped that he would be different than his father, but there was an eruption, a political eruption in the temple during festival. 
And Archelaus sent his troops into the temple, and 3,000 participants in the temple were killed. This was a huge problem. And so the Jews did not want him to be king. And when he returned, yeah, he kind of settled up in accounts. We don't have any report of a big slaughter, but it's mentioned that, uh, you know, he remembered things politically, and it affected the people of Judea and the people of Samaria. He was an unjust king. And it wasn't long after, just a few years, that Rome stepped in, removed Archelaus. He was actually called an ethnarch because instead of the entire kingdom, he was just over Judea and Samaria. So a little bit of a reduction, but still the biggest one of the group. And he was removed from that, and that's why in Jesus' day, there was no king on the throne. Rome was ruling itself with its governors. That's why Pilate tries Jesus. And the king that we're, that's alluded to is, is from an adjacent territory but of the Herodians. There is no king. So they want a king when he gets into Jerusalem. They want him to bring in a righteous, just kingdom. And so when Jesus talks about this king returning, there are just two ways to see this. Either he is the Messiah, and that's a stance of faith. Those who had heard him and seen him, seen his miracles, knew what he stood for, but he's saying, listen, it's going to be tested by opposition because there are those who see me as another Archelaus. And so it is even today. I think more than ever, we realize that we're nearer to Jerusalem than ever. And I think sometimes we have to do a gut check on our loyalty, our honor, and our trust in Jesus. We can be sure he's a generous, generous nobleman and king. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray um, as I've been doing... I could change it, you know, I, but for now I'm going to pray, and, but I want to remind you that I know the Lord's here and I know he works in ways that exceed my expectation. And I know he speaks to you and touches your heart. His spirit moves in our midst. Some of you he may be prompting to, to change something and you'd like to pray about it. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you want to really be, get serious and vigorous about learning more so that you can make a reasoned, heartfelt decision for or against him. We invite you to come. And if you have made that decision, but you've never professed it, and you'd like to come and pray with me or one of the other pastoral staff elders or their wives, we invite you to come. Maybe... Uh, this has stirred up something that's related in your life. You'd like to pray about it or pray on behalf of somebody else. Whatever it is, we invite you to come. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is stern stuff. It reminds us that you are our Lord, our King, our Prince of Peace. 
And when you got to Jerusalem, it wasn't to reign, it was to die. You were the one slaughtered for us. And now we await your triumphant coronation and acknowledgement. Help us to live that way, Lord, day to day with the little, uh, little things, choices, situations that we live with by comparison. And do so in your strength and faith. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of his people said, God bless you.